it up and down You see it into end You read it like a book And then for what it is You take a look and when it rains When it rains All the sun comes out again Crown of age, crown of age Just like it's always been And you know, and you know Don, this is uh, Eric and Brad Brad and Eric This is Don Hi, Don Hi, Don, nice to hey, meet you Hey, guys Nice to meet you. Okay, good. So, it's Eric, I was kidding. Yeah, Eric brought Don to the mix tonight. Excellent. Cool. So, should we just jump right I'm in? Sorry for your loss, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I think one of the last people uh, Eric brought was the lady who decorates the house for Halloween. And oh, that was, Mary Hoffman. Yeah, that Mary was Hoffman. yeah, that was a podcast and a half. So, oh, nice. Yeah. So, you know, Eric's got uh, a good taste. We'll just go with that. So, <laughs> all right. So, are we ready? Sure. I think sure. so. Cool. All right. So, this is Here You Are, Wassa. I'm uh, one of your hosts, Dino, and I'm here with my main man, uh, Eric. Eric, you there? Yo, yo, yo. Cool. And uh, on this podcast, our friend Brad is back. And, uh, and our new friend Don is here, and the goal tonight is to talk a little bit about Stan Lee, who just passed away, uh, from what I understand, at the ripe old age of 92. I think it was 95. Holy shit. Can you, can you believe that? 95. Oh, my God. Yeah, and, he, was, he was born in 1922. Yeah. Wow. So then the, the big question you know, I mean, there's all sorts of specific questions, but so uh, you guys are are more comic book oriented than I am because we've documented my relationship with comics on this podcast a couple of times. So, uh, <laughs> so when did you become Don? When did you become aware of that there was a person named Stan Lee? Oh my gosh! Uh, let's see. I started buying comics. Mid seventies when I was just a kid, so I'd say probably about five or six years old. And uh, the great thing about comics, not only the artwork, but the fact that Stan Lee, who wrote most of them at the time, or at least had a hand in editing and art directing them, uh, had this huge vocabulary that he would unleash upon everybody. Uh, Vinny Vidi Vici was the title of one Captain America. Uh, strip that had come out at that time and you know, I'm like what the hell does this even mean so then you go and look it up and you start learning a little bit of Latin and then he's throwing out things like yes, Excelsior you know so he's, he's throwing all this kind of stuff he's very well read very well rounded so that was, that was very good exposure to literature at the time uh, don't tell my parents though they never would have believed it and so then what about you Brad oh man you know I think it was probably when I was reading the X-Men, probably in the mid-70s. I would just get the occasional issue here and there, but Stan Lee's name was, you know, in there as one of the creators of, of the X-Men. And I think that's probably where I first really was consciously aware of Stan Lee. Yeah. So what about you, Eric? I, well, I probably the early 90s. I mean, I knew about all of his characters since being a kid, but I didn't really 
get into comics until early 90s. So really understanding who the writers were and producers and everything behind the scenes wasn't until then. So how how did you become Don when you when you became aware of him? Hold the phone. Okay, hold on. How about how about you? I yeah, I don't really want to embarrass myself. You know, That's, so you're in a safe place. Safe yeah. Okay, so it's probably oh god, this is so embarrassing. It was probably I mean, I, I assume I heard the name like everybody else did as part of pop culture, but um sort of the first actual memory of having a discussion about him was with my friend Jill at the movie, uh, mall rats. Oh, there you go. Yeah. You know, oh, right. yeah. Yeah. So it was Stan had done, uh, uh, a cameo, I think of some sort. Oh and yeah. I, and like my friend Jill just lost her shit. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm like, what just happened? Who, why, who's that old man? You know, and, and you know, like, oh, why is it a big deal that Stan Lee is in the movie? And yeah, so for the 15 minutes in the car on the way home, I, I proceeded to get lectured about all of o- that. Only 15, Dino? Yeah, well, no, because we lived close by and I just had her drop me off because I, I wanted the, the lecture to be over with. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, that was it. It was one of those things where I'm I'm. Don, I'm not, since it's the first time we're talking, I'm not a comic book guy. I, I struggle with comic books, and I, I really want to be a comic book guy, but uh, it's I'm 47, and it's just, I, I it passed me by. So, yeah, so my first awareness of Stan Lee was then. And then since then, like everybody else, you sort of, my English major sensibility is like, okay, so I want to, let's, let's start looking at Stan Lee a little bit. And you sort of get the history, and... You, you think it through and stuff. And then, and then all of a sudden he started showing up in all the movies, you know, just as the, the Stan Lee cameo. And it's like, all right, that's, that's really cool. So, <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's embarrassing. That's not embarrassing. Okay, good. At least you're owning it. So that's good. Yeah, exactly. So, all right. So then, um, my, my follow-up question is, you know, for specifically for Don and Brad, are are you guys Stan Lee because like our friend Evan isn't a superhero guy. That's not that's not his sort of Yeah, that's niche. not his bag. Right. So but are are you two superhero guys? I have to say yes, I am. Okay. Um God. Uh you know Yes and no. I I, I guess I, I enjoy superhero stuff. I enjoy the MCU movies. I watch the CW superhero shows. But, you know, like Sandman, not a superhero. Great storytelling by Neil Gaiman. Um, trying to think. Uh, v for Vendetta, not really a superhero story, but uh, an important story. And, of course, DC. We've completely jumped to another company. But there there's more than just superhero stuff and i think that's probably where evan and i kind of meshed that's where our gears kind of kind of met in our discussions is i read stuff other than superhero stuff and that's how we connected so i, I do both same boat honestly um you know it started with superheroes when i was a kid but as you get older and you branch out and you're looking for more 
diverse and more adult theme type of work, then yeah, I went more toward the indie comics and uh, like I said, Sandman, huge influence. And uh, a lot of Alan Moore work was not really superhero related too. So I'm just going to walk into this, who's Sandman? <laughs> ah, okay. Um, that's a very good question, and I'm going to try not to nerd out on you here. No, let's nerd um, out. Let's go. <laughs> this this uh, could be the rest of our podcast. Yeah, right well, question, you know. try Okay, not. well. Uh, no, Sandman was a started out as a Golden Age character, right? And he was right. a superhero of sorts. Um, he was a a guy with a like a a sleep gun. Essentially, he would put you to sleep with this gun that would just emit gas, right? Um, he wore a gas mask too. Yep, because you don't want to be breathing that in if you're knocking people out. If you knock yourself out at the same time, you're not really much of a hero at all. Um, And then they tried to sort of um, bring it back and change it up a little bit. I want to say it was uh, early 70s, and they did kind of an updated version of Sandman. And I think it went five issues, and then it kind of collapsed. And then, um, what's her name? Karen Berger, um, ended up, yeah, they, they decided, DC decided to do comics that kind of didn't really fit in the superhero mold. And they eventually created a, an imprint called Vertigo and it was Swamp Thing. It was, um a doom patrol it was sandman and basically they they took the more supernatural the more when i say adult themed i mean mature themed type material and created a kind of a side imprint that handled these types of issues and characters and sandman was neil gaiman's go at doing just really interesting storytelling that had nothing to do with superheroes. It had everything to do with, with people, uh, especially to start. Um, and then it kind of branched out to kind of d- developing the mythos that he sort of created, um, for this character, Sandman Morpheus, uh, one of the endless and, it just really was amazing storytelling. And yeah, I, I'm not sure that I, I might give you an issue or two Dino to, to just kind of look through, but I, I'm not sure it would necessarily be your bag for the, the full run. Cool. Don, what do you think? Love it. It's one of my favorite all time series. Um, just to add a little bit of clarity in there, they, they did early on introduce some of the, DC superheroes in there, so I think uh, Batman and Superman had made a very early appearance in there, and then they just kind of phased them out completely because it really was its own self-contained universe dealing with archetypal themes, if you want to put it that way, uh, which you mentioned about the Endless. So there were seven of them, Dream, Desire, Death, and each of these characters was kind of woven in and out of the series. It's basically this big family of the endless that kind of rule the galaxy. And, and Morpheus was 
the Lord of Dreams, and he had seven or eight story arcs that were woven in and out, and uh, it continued for what, I want to say about 75 issues, and then uh, Gaiman just wrapped it up and shut it down, and he's, he's returned it once or twice, but it's it's a very much cut-and-dried, self-contained series with a pretty definite beginning, middle, and end. I mean, it's was, it was very unique. It's, it's yep. a terrific series. Here, here. Wow. So, yeah, none of those words meant very much to me. <laughs> and and that's okay. That's yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I think, you know, I think I, I'm familiar with Jill talking about some of those names. But, uh, yeah, beyond that, I have no idea what you're talking about. So, Eric, did you? Yes and no. I've never read the stories so i don't know what they're about but i mean i understand the general gist from comics but i'm going to bring it back to stan lee and say that you know in the 50s and 60s when he decided to bring bring i don't know superheroes into reality he sort of did a lot of what you guys just explained with sandman right i mean he he made them a bit vain he made them human you know, they, they would get sick, colds, flus, things like that. Yeah. And that was long before Sandman was, was even an idea. Yeah. So did, he, did, he, did he drive that? I don't know, but it's just an interesting well, point. In a sense, he kind of did. Um, I think we had been around comics forever. I mean, he already been, uh, he was in his late 30s, I think. Uh, when he kind of kicked off the superhero, the Marvel superhero line. And uh, what had happened up at that point, uh, the, the Silver Age had already kind of kicked off with Showcase number four and Flash being rolled out by DC Comics. Um, but sales were lagging. They were trying to get, they were getting over the whole, you know, comics are evil, Fred McWhorter uh, uh, area, right? So. Yep. And we, they were just kind of muddling around with, with, with books like uh, Tales to Astonish and Journey in a Mystery that had a bunch of very short, eight-page like monster stories or love stories or Western stories. And I think what, what I uh, had heard is that Lee just had a revelation. He was talking with his wife, and he, he uh, at that time, he was also freelancing. He was doing advertising work, and other types of editorial copy type of work, and he was not putting very much effort at all into comics, and his wife just said to him, you know, you're so talented, and you really do like comic books, why don't you just put some effort into creating them the way you do your freelance stuff? And he went back to the office that uh, the next day, and he, he said, yeah, you know what, I'm going to start writing comics that I want to read. So... He, uh, he kind of revolutionized the industry in this way. Is Not only did he kind of come up with that whole concept of creating comics that were aimed more at uh, young adults, college-age kids, rather than 10-year-olds, but he also uh, kind of kicked off this whole idea that uh, back in those days, uh, when you had to create a comic, you basically, the, the writer sat down and created the whole concept, right? So he kind of detailed out, okay, in panel number one, there's a spaceship there humans kind of looking off to the side and off in the distance you can see this other spaceship moving toward them. <laughs> um, so he would kind of write the, the, uh, 
writer would put all this down, and then he would turn it over to an artist who would uh, religiously transcribe all that information into, you know, from the comic book panel. So, you know, it was, it was just really cut and dry. You did this part, got went to the artist, and yours did his part. So how Stan Lee revolutionized it is he teamed up with a bunch of very creative artists like Jack Kirby, Steve Ditko, and he came up with these one-page, all right, so with this issue, uh, you've got the Fantastic Four, and they're going to meet Submariner, and here's how they run into him. And Submariner has got this axe to grind against the human race, and here's why, and he's going to bring this Leviathan from the bottom of the ocean is going to come up and attack New York City, and the Fantastic Four have to try to stop So he can come up with this one-page quick synopsis, and then he turn it over to Jack Kirby, who would then take it and go off and was free to create this in any way, shape, or form he desired. He didn't have to stick to any sort of panel format, other than he had to create 22 pages. So when Kirby was done with it, a couple of weeks later, he'd come back and drop it off, and Stanley would look at it and say, yep, this is perfect, this is what I'm looking for, and go in and start... Uh, adding in the dialogue in the little tongue balloons that you see in there. And if you ran into something where you couldn't cram in his exposition, he'd say, ah, Jack, this isn't quite what I'm looking for. Can you replace this panel with something else that's a little bit more like that? So then they'd just be working back and forth. It was truly a collaborative effort between the artist and the writer. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because at that time... Uh, Julia Schwartz was the uh, was the main editor for DC Comics, and his approach was he would come up with the most outlandish idea for a comic book cover, like you know, um, uh, it, it, it's kind of like Gorillas if you think are everywhere. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it was like the clickbait that we have of the internet age, right? It would be yes. something so freakishly outlandish that you would never think would happen and you would pick it up because it was just so ridiculous. You're like, how would Superman get out of that? And that was his approach. And basically he would, he would hand somebody the cover. He's like, I want you to do this cover and make me a story. And, and that was his approach. And, and Stanley just took it in a different direction and allowed that collaborative effort that, you know, that Don was saying, which, you know, didn't, I don't think really, really happened. You know, I, I think that artists got the chance to be a little bit more front and center. Um, and I think that that kind of laid a lot of the groundwork for what came to pass later on in, in comic book history, I think. So then uh, I wonder how much back and forth there was. Right. I mean, so Stan would give these scripts to the artists, the artists would create the work. How many times did Stan come back and say, yeah, nah, let's try that again? That's well, a good question. He never did a, I don't think he ever did a total overhaul on an issue. There, there were a couple of times, I think when they were first creating Spider-Man, uh, from what I remember, uh, Amazing Fantasy 15 was kind of in the works and concept there was uh, Spider-Man had gotten his power through a magical ring and uh, he's 
started showing it around, Kirby at that point was already doing like four or five different books, just didn't have the bandwidth to do it. So we looked around the bullpen or looked around to see who else could do it. Steve Ditko was kind of hanging around, so showed it to Ditko, and Ditko took a look at it and said, dude, this is exactly what I did for a character called The Fly. So I, I think you probably need to take another run at that. So uh, we went back and said, okay, let's see, I'm going to dump this. Maybe, uh, how about if he's this kid, how about if he's a kid and he's bitten by a radioactive spider? Why don't we try something like that? And then, so he kind of <laughs> came up with that whole one-page concept, turned it over to Ditko, and Ditko kind of did his thing with it. And he's very moody and really brought in a whole lot of the teenage angst to it that we uh, know and love today. Yeah, it's really interesting to know, like you mentioned The Fly, and The Fly was a part of Red Circle, which was a branch of uh, Archie Comics. And it's amazing to see all these different guys that jumped from company to company to do different things. Um, like uh, Kirby had had worked with DC and then came over to Marvel and then went back to DC. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, it was just really interesting to see these guys kind of jump back and forth throughout their their careers and and be a part of some interesting stuff. Okay, so, so there you go. Wow. All right. Oh, so okay, that that was Dino's way of saying I have no idea what the fuck is going on. Yeah, <laughs> Dude, that was that was awesome and so beyond any. Like I don't even know. I don't honestly know what an intelligent follow-up question would be at this point, other than, <laughs> is that what you think? You know, because, yeah, all right. So then I'm going to, I'll start with, I'm going to bring it back to something <laughs> that I'd like to talk about, or would think, it, yeah, so Jesus Christ. Um, so how big is, is Stan Lee as big a factor or a big as historical figure in comic books as he's made out to be? Don? Oh, yeah. Absolutely, 100%. I, I think he... Even though he was the ultimate showman, the ultimate huckster, and the ultimate uh, look-what-I-did type of a guy, um, he was the one who really... He established so many different new and creative ways, and he put superheroes on the map. He put Marvel Comics on the map. Um, just the way he went about storytelling, you know, like we were talking about when he created these one-page scripts, turned over to the artists, it really kind of turned into the dawn of the age of artists. Not only that, he took it a step further, and he was the first man to put credits on the inside of the comic book. So, you know, who wrote them, who the artist was, who the letter was, who the inker was, who the editor was, everybody. So he really really promoted the heck out of the industry and he brought a certain intelligence and a unified universe for people to get into and you know he brought comics he made it respectable i guess is, is, is how i would say brad you know There were two different types of, of storytelling for the most part with DC and Marvel. And uh, it's already been mentioned, but he 
DC really kind of focused on the powers. You know, hey, look at what Superman can do this week. Um, and they wanted to wow people with fantastic adventures. But Stan's approach was to not just focus. I mean, okay, let's take Fantastic Four, for instance. Okay. Yeah, you had them get exposed to cosmic radiation and they got superpowers, right? But Ben Grimm was really kind of upset that he got these powers, that he was a rock guy, that he wasn't, it wasn't so much that he was vain, it was just that he was so different that he was alienated and it made him angry. Um, you had marital troubles between Reed and Sue at later points uh, in, in the comics. There... There was, uh, they explored more of the human element, you know, the human of the superhuman. And that's what really made them stand out. Um, it was just an, uh, an evolution of storytelling in that medium. And I think that Stanley helped usher that important uh, event in to comics. And I think going back to something Don said too, you know, he really helped the artists you know he really valued them you know you ask if do you know you ask if he was as big of a deal he was i mean he turned this this medium over to the artists he gave them a script and said show me what you got you know and they were i don't know they were stories i think that no one like no one had seen before but took those stories and put them in the hands of someone visual who was able to represent comics for what they were really just visual medium. The other thing that was interesting about him that maybe you guys can talk about is how, how much of an activist he was. I mean, a lot of these stories stem from his political bends throughout late fifties into the seventies. Um, yeah, I just thinking about like characters like, uh, for instance, Luke Cage, uh, I don't think that was necessarily, you know, now, now I'm kind of wandering into territory I'm not familiar with. I can't oh, remember. Just, just wander, buddy. Okay. So, <laughs> all right, well, well, let's go here. DC Comics had a black superhero named Black Lightning. I'm just going to let that soak in for a second. Luke Cage was Power Man. That was his that was his kind of superhero name. And how he got his powers was he was a man who was in prison who was experimented on <laughs> illegally. And he gains abilities and he decides to, you know, use those for good. Um, you know, I, I don't have a whole lot of experience with Black Lightning. I mean, I know he was a part of Batman and the Outsiders, but, you know, I don't know a lot of his story. But Power Man and Iron Fist, who was... 
<sighs> kind of an entitled white dude um, <laughs> who ended up uh, usurping uh, powers. Uh, that There's a whole imperialist sort of uh, storytelling in there, but I digress. It was interesting to have that that team up of these two guys who were equals, who were different races. And to just explore that story, you know, it wasn't anything, there was nothing. It was two guys. One guy happened to be black and they just, they explored that. They explored the stories of being superheroes and just doing their thing. But I don't think that, so they got to uh, kind of approach racial I'll issues. Yep. Probably. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, it was just, he was guiltless. He was just given such dignity and, and sense of purpose and just just a terrifically thought-out character. And you learn more and more about him. And, and Fantastic Four went back to Wakanda very often. Um, not only that, I'll, I'll throw out there, too, the reason they ran into him in the first place. Part of the team at that point was uh, Johnny Storm's college roommate, Wyatt Wingsport, who was a Native American. Yeah. And uh, very self-reliant. He had no superpowers whatsoever. He had no fear of anything. He was always just hanging out with Fantastic Four. Um, then you could see Lee bringing in other characters. He created the Inhumans. He created the X-Men. All of whom dealt with, to your point earlier, about alienation and distancing themselves and how each of them had challenges that they had to deal with, not only physically, but with society as a whole and how a family kind of wove those themes in and out of the different issues. I and mean, it was always part of the backdrop of what he was creating in this whole entire universe. That, you know, unlike, unlike DC, where the, the big guys were kind of wholesome and they had all these self-contained stories and they were confident and did whatever they needed to do to get the job done and, and they were never questioned. Marvel superheroes were always questioned. They always had a, some modicum of self-doubt. There was always, uh, you know, as close as they got to humanity, humanity would push them away to some degree. And they always seemed to be heroes that were fighting, not necessarily other superhero-type villains, right? I mean, I think it was sometime in the 70s where Spider-Man was dealing with uh, what we call an opioid-edemic, you know, epidemic, his friend i think had gotten addicted to some painkillers or something and uh you know spider-man was there to deal with that so it had nothing to do with villains super villains extraterrestrial villains it was just you know it was this kid and his friend who was dealing with a unfortunately typical high school event obvious question for me so seriously don how do you know all this stuff 
Like it. Oh gosh. Like oh, so. Okay. Well, hold hold on before yeah. we forget about it, Don. <laughs> yeah. Why don't you tell us about your time interviewing Stanley? Wait, what? Well, Wait, that didn't oh, that I that wasn't get... the thing that started the podcast. <laughs> we got to go thirty five minutes through Man, shit I don't understand to hear the, the oh, headline. Oh, for Christ's sake! People oh, are going to stop well. listening if we tell them right out the gate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Just well, go ahead. I'm just so going to give you a little now. background. I'll I'll just give you a little bit of background. So I um I've I've I worked for uh, Comics Buyers Guide for a while back in the uh, early 90s. Then there was another comics publication that was produced by Project Publications as well called Comics Retailer. I was the editor for that. Um, and then after that, I jumped down to Sendai Publications, which did a magazine called Hero Illustrated back in the mid-90s for a while. So throughout all of these, I got the chance to kind of work in the industry a little bit and chat with quite a few artists, um, writers, industry professionals, things like that. So yeah, uh, to Eric's point, I, I did. Uh, I got a chance to talk with Stan Lee when we were with Hero Illustrated. He was, you know, he's painting something. I can't remember exactly what it was at the time, but for us, we had some big promotion going on, and uh, he had agreed to do a commercial for us. So we had a chance to kind of sit with him as a group and, and just do a group interview. He's a super busy guy, so it was very difficult to, to pull him down. But this must have been 93, 94, something like that. So we were able to get him in the room and just start peppering him with questions. And you know, it's, it's a lot of the stories that he's told before. So a lot of things that I'm telling you tonight are kind of the same exact stuff that he would repeat to us. And, and these are stories that he's told millions of times, I would assume, at this point. But, um, you know, just just hearing his take on how he created the heroes. And, and yeah, take it with a grain of salt because he's a very much of a self-promoter and he took a lot of credit for a lot of stuff. But uh, he also he also was a very big hand in pushing comics to the forefront of society back at the time. You know, again, this is kind of coming out of an age where comics were thought about as just disposable items and he brought in the whole, you know, soap opera mentality into older readers, more college readers, and uh, yeah, he's it, it just just a terrific, just a terrific guy to interview. And you know, super excited about the industry, loved what he was doing, just absolutely loved it. And uh, you could really get that sense of exuberance from him. All right, so um, yeah, Brad, do you know what those magazines are about? Yeah, well, I in the '90s I was. Uh, managing a comic book shop in lacrosse so <clears throat> yeah i had wizard magazine and comics buyer's guide i'd been reading since like god the late 80s um yeah uh that that's if you wanted to i mean because the internet wasn't really a thing uh not to the not to the public not to the masses so if you wanted to find out what was going on in the comics industry you really had to read you had to read the trades um, comics buyer's guide was, was huge in that, in the industry. Um, if you wanted to know anything going on in comics, you, you got that. Um, and we, yeah, we sold it up until the very end of the publication. So. Yeah. It originally started out as a weekly 
And it was yeah. really just like a, a little newspaper, honestly. Yeah. Uh, Don and Maggie Thompson, who had real kids, they, they used to be uh, newspaper reporters. Sorry if I'm getting off topic, by the way. No, no, buddy, you go ahead. <laughs> so Don and Maggie Thompson had been reporters in um, Cleveland for the Cleveland Free Press, and uh, they started off a little fan magazine with both love comics, so they went to some of the early trade shows in New York, and they just started literally a, a little magazine uh, just devoted to nothing but comics. And, and it was only for fans of comics called Comics by This Guy. So, and then in the mid-1980s, I believe it was, uh, Crosby Publications purchased it and relocated it to Iowa, Wisconsin, and Don and Maggie came with them, and uh, yeah. that's kind of how that whole comics division was born, you know, just right down the road from where we are. <laughs> wow. Wow. So then I, I want to follow up on the significance of Stan Lee a little bit. So, Brad, if you had to pick uh, four creators or whatever, makers of comic books, um, uh, who who would be the Mount Rushmore, the four faces of, you know, the most significant humans in, in comic book history? Who are the four? Lee, Lee and Kirby would be two of them. Um, if I were to do Marvel, it would be Lee Oh, no, Kirby. no, it's not just... No, it's the whole universe. Oh, you son of a bitch. I'm sorry, okay. buddy. Yeah. Um, okay, so Lee, Kirby... Uh, Carmen Infantino. Uh, who would be my fourth? Wow. This is making for great podcasts with all yeah, the Yeah, that's okay. How that's about, okay. Awesome. How about that? We'll let you think of your fourth, Don. Yeah. If you could pick your four faces from Mount Rushmore. All right. I agree 100% with Lee and Kirby. Beyond that, you're going to hate this, but I'd probably have a second Mount Rushmore. Okay. So you no! got to go first with the Golden That's Age cheating. guys. So I'd throw in Bob Kane, who wrote and uh, created Batman. And I would actually combine this one, but... This Eagle and Schuster, who created Superman, I'd probably put them as as another wing. Uh, so that'd yeah. be the golden age for the for the newer age. I'd include uh, Lee and Kirby, and then I'd also throw in Alan Moore and Frank Miller. Bastard. Uh, okay, Brad, did you come up with fourth? And if you'd like to build the yeah, second, you know if you'd like to build the second wing, feel free. No, that's a cop out. I refuse. <laughs> no, uh, my fourth, I think my fourth would be Julius Schwartz. Cause he, he really kind of kicked off the reemergence of the, of the silver age, which kind of ushered in Lee and Kirby really having jobs. So there you go. Julius Schwartz. Boom. Well, and to add to Julius Schwartz's, um, pantheon there too, for what it's worth, he was one of the ones who helped usher in the whole 
direct market for comic book retailers. Yes. So yep. there you go, Brad. Right up your alley. Gave you a livelihood yep. for a while there. Absolutely. Yeah, there's so many. And and if you want to read a good bit of history, Dino, and I, I know that you would. Okay. There is a book. Oh, now I have to. And my it's on my shelf in the other room. Um. Where? Come on. Gee, Brad. What there are we you go. Doing? Men of Men of Tomorrow. Oh yeah, yeah. And don't don't. Oh yeah, yeah. Like you know what he's talking. about. I've heard of it. I can't describe it. Uh, but I know what it is. <laughs> Men of Tomorrow: Geeks, Gangsters, and the Birth of the Comic Book. Okay. Come on. For all intents and purposes, unless prohibition had come to pass, the likelihood of us having comic books would be probably 5%. Oh, okay, well, so what the hell does that mean? What would end up happening is because of prohibition, obviously, you couldn't, you know, manufacture booze for all intents and purposes, and it absolutely wasn't for sale. To get booze into the United States mob organizations would buy um, newspapers or uh, magazines to uh, buy paper pulp from Canada where they could get whiskey and other alcohol and then they would mix it in in their shipments. Well, now they've got all this paper pulp and they've got to do something with it. And so comics were eventually born out of that. Don, is that, that right? <laughs> yeah, sounds right to me. I don't know. Uh, that's kind of it in a nutshell. And uh, I'm giving you the kind of the thousand thousand yard view of the whole thing. But I highly recommend if you want to know the history of comic books, Men of Tomorrow, Geeks and Gangsters, the birth of the comic book. Absolutely eye opening. And it gives you a really good insight into into the industry, into into Bob Kane and his shenanigans with uh, <laughs> how he uh, how he got around some some contract stuff, and uh, it just there's a lot of interesting stories to the history of comic books, and it all ties together with prohibition. So there you go. Wow, truly American history from comic books. Oh boy, Eric, help! <laughs> what, what do you want me to help? I don't. With? I don't know, man. It, I don't know. I, I'm out of comic stuff. books and alcohol. What else? Yeah, do you I, don't, I don't really know. The only <laughs> other, the only other person I would add to your wall of fame or your mountain of superheroes or whatever you're calling it is, uh, well, I would probably add Alan Moore. I don't know if Don said Alan Moore. He did say Frank Miller, but is uh, Todd. McFarland. All right, so oh, that's I, bad. See, I don't. You can grumble, but you know he was a big part of the resurgence in the nineties. Or maybe he wasn't, uh, Eric, and you're just a big well, dick. No, it's not. Oh, okay. no, 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 no. Let's 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 pedal that back. Did Todd McFarlane help change some of the his some of of comic the comic book industry? That's sort of change. I wasn't thinking change. I was thinking add new life into the popularity of it. 
Oh boy! I would call that I would call it debatable. All um, right, let's yeah, debate it then. You're both full of shit. Yeah. Get off my podcast. Let's, let's debate this <laughs> shit then, because I, mean, I don't know what we're talking about. Time, so. <laughs> and here now it's devolved. Yeah. All right. So, <laughs> all right. So this Todd McFarland person who I know did Spawn. Yeah. Um, and something, it, it, I think he was revolutionary because of money, if I remember the. The documentary I watched, but so Eric, why why is he why is he on your uh, list of awesome people who I don't know about? Spawn, Spawn for one. Okay, was a huge character and still is a huge character, and he did some, well, not as amazing as Stan Lee, but he did some amazing things for Spider Man visually. So. And I think that in I think, itself. I think know, more important, more important to. Um, hey, I'm just going to talk right over you. Okay? You go so ahead. Go off. ahead. So he, I'm, not, I'm not really uh, here. My t- my take on McFarland is uh, he is important, but not so much for his artistry, and he was awesome at what he did, but because he, along with Rob Liefeld and Eric Larson and Jim Valentino. And a couple of other guys, they split off from Marvel and DC, and Jim Lee. uh, They split off from Marvel and DC and formed Image Comics, which were like creator-owned comics. Uh, Don't leave out Will Sportatio. Yeah, don't leave out Will. Yeah, Will Sportatio, (laughs) right. Yeah. Don't forget Will, right. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And Sam Keith, you can't forget him either. Right, of course not. Oh, seriously, if you think about the MCU and how popular that is, make a Max movie. Seriously. That would be some amazing shit right there. Who's just who's Max? Dead dead silence. Yes, right. Of course. Yeah, Max. Okay, whatever. That was Sam Keith, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yeah. Of course it was. What's what's interesting about the timing of Image and how it came about is we talked about how Stan Lee innovated a writer going, hey, here's an idea I got. Draw it out. I'll put in the word balloons. McFarlane and Liefeld were upset that at this point in time in the 90s, artists weren't getting their fair share, whatever the hell that meant. And they decided that they were going to start their own company and they were going to make their own comics and they were going to put as many goddamn pockets on a costume that you possibly could shove onto a costume. And, and they went ahead and did it and beautifully drawn comics and the stories, you know, the only to me, the only stories that were worth a damn reading were the max Spawn at the beginning. Um, I had a third. Uh, Savage uh, Dragon? Savage Dragon at the beginning. Um, But what's interesting is while everything was very beautiful to look at, at a certain point, everybody wanted control of their characters and the stories ended up suffering over time. Well, so, they didn't even have any stories. That was a problem. I mean, they just that, really no plots to them. It was just giant splash pages all the time. I Yeah, there was a lot of that. But like the story of Billy Kincaid in the beginning of Spawn and the whole 
structure of hell was kind of interestingly thought out, and I'm sure he lifted it from somebody because that's Todd McFarlane. Um, but and how he ripped off Neil Gaiman with Angela, but that's a whole other story for another time. Yeah, that's another podcast, man. We'll, we'll get into that one next time. You have no idea what I they're have talking about. No idea about, who any of these people are. And that's so, okay. So Eric, nice one. Whatever. Yeah, so so Don, I'd like you to shit on Eric as well now. Okay. What Just keep in mind, Stan Lee made a show called Stripperella. All right. Uh, and you're not, not everybody's wrong. perfect. And he wrote Ravage 2099, which <sighs> yeah, you know, was what... even worse than Stripperella. Yeah. Well, I actually I, I think Stripperella has some redeeming features just in the name. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on who you talk to. Right. I, you know, I don't know. So, um, It was interesting knowing that Stanley had created all of this stuff. And at a certain point in the 90s, Marvel Comics decided to do a 2099 series. In other words, they wanted to do a series of stories that took place in the year 2099. And they had Punisher 2099, they had X-Men 2099, they had Doom 2099, which was interesting. Um, Spider-Man 2099, and then Stan Lee came on board to do Ravage 2099. And comic books in the 90s had turned into a gritty affair. It's like grunge music thrown into comic books. And Thanks to Watchmen and to Dark Knight. Yeah. it's like a bastard interpretation of what made those stories great yeah very is, much so is what I would absolutely argue to the bitter end um, it, it's amazing how somebody could and Dino you have no idea nope. what the hell we're talking okay. about don't worry about it I'm good <laughs> but imagine okay let, let, let's go let, let's go this route Imagine reading stuff, reading books, reading magazines that were written at a level where people could be broken, people could be, you know, they overcome these problems, they work through things, and at the end of the day, everything will turn out pretty much okay for the most part. And then you get Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns. Which I've read which Batman is absolutely broken. The world is absolutely broken and they need an even more broken hero to come and try to unbreak some of this stuff, which didn't really work out. And then you've got Watchmen, which uh, basically a, the only way for humanity to come together is to be angry at a psychic squid that somebody genetically engineered and, and teleported into the middle of New York City and killed millions of people. Wait, what? <laughs> I don't remember that. Are you that. saying you don't like it? No, I'm just saying I don't remember that from the book at all. Uh, the psychic squid? Yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, that's okay. Fine. I'll page back through it. Yeah, but, I will. I, I own that, so I'll, I'll go back and read it. But, you know, the, the, the things that made those stories compelling... And great is that not because necessarily of the dark grittiness, but of the exploration of the characters themselves, right? We get a better insight into why Bruce Wayne became who he was and how he was going to take the world that 
he's somewhat responsible for making and come back out of retirement to try to fix the things that are wrong. And he really doesn't entirely succeed. It's the point where, you know, the hero comes in, does his thing for four issues and standardly, if that is actually a word, things, there would be a bright, a, a bright light. There would be change. There would be something that you'd feel good about. And at the end of that, you really don't feel that good about stuff. The only thing you feel good about is uh, Bruce Wayne isn't actually dead at the end of it. And that's really the only bright shining spot of that whole four issue run. Um, Watchmen is abysmal. <laughs> the world has gone completely to hell. Uh, we're about to nuke each other. And the only way that it could be stopped is a super intelligent human being went, you know what? I need people to hate something even more than each other and be distrustful of this thing and work together to fight against this thing to stop the madness. And he basically plays chess with all these other heroes to out, outsmart them to manifest this thing to get everybody to come together. He succeeds, but the cost <laughs> is just awful. And there are people that are left that know the actual truth, that all of this happiness that's been manufactured is absolutely predicated on a lie. That's not what a hero does. You know, you're left feeling conflicted reading a superhero story that really made you feel a lot of things. So getting back to 2099 and this stuff, Stan Lee was asked to write a story in a world that had changed um, narratively to something that he w it was outside of his wheelhouse. And the Ravage character just was not, it wasn't, it was like kind of a weird fusion of his idealism and the awfulness of the future. <laughs> and it just, it didn't gel, it didn't mesh, and it just, it felt weird to read. And it was well, sad. I would say by that point, I would say by that point too, Stanley hadn't really been actively engaged in creating anything no. new. Absolutely. For decades at that stage, because he Absolutely. kind of phased out of writing for writing yep. for Marvel. I mean, he still did some of the editing and some of the other stuff and oversaw the whole thing, but he was kind of done with that in the early 70s. Yep. He turned that over to Roy so. Thomas and a bunch of other writers. Um, so then he came back, and you know, by that point, he's already in his 60s. So I, I would say that you know, in terms, of, from a creative standpoint, both he and Jack Kirby uh, – also, at the same time, he was kind of come back and he had tried to do some stuff with Topps Comics and things yeah. like that. Kind of polishing off some of his old characters that he had created that were discarded by DC. And uh, they, they, just, they just didn't take, honestly. Yeah, they just felt kind of hollow for something from... I hate to use the phrase, a bygone era, but it just felt out of place. And, 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 yeah, uh, that. So... I'm not sure exactly entirely where we went with that, but um, the well, <laughs> basically straight to 2099. Yeah, and and Todd McFarland. Um, it, it was like they had taken all of these things that they thought were great and learned the wrong lesson 
it's like telling a child, hey, you know, I told you not to, to touch the thing and now it's broke. And what are you going to do about it? And they're like, oh, I'll just hit it with a hammer harder. You know, it just really kind of felt like they learned the wrong thing. And then they just created something that looked beautiful, <laughs> but it didn't it didn't feel right. And then everybody else went, holy crap, Image is selling a lot of comics. We got to make changes. And then DC Comics came up with Bloodwind and, you know, just all these awful 90s things. And I, I kind of blame Image and I blame... Uh, speculation in comics for really kind of taking everything in a horrible direction and kind of undoing a lot of the work that Stan Lee had done. So there you go. Yeah. Suck it, Eric. Wow. <laughs> well, no. And, and I'm going to end this shit on that note because. No, and, 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 and that's not to say that you're liking a thing is wrong. I would yeah, never say it that. is. It is. No, it's I'm not saying that. Well, and you can Clearly because Todd you're, McFarlane's you're, a bad person. You're the well, he's he's a thief. Yeah, but see, <laughs> um, but he did make a change, and it did have impact in the comic book industry. So there's that. Cool. All right. So the bad news is uh, we lost Don um, right there. So Eric, if you could uh, text Don and uh, tell him thanks for being on the podcast. But uh, I think Eric's throwing things across the room now. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, Brad, this was awesome. I, I absolutely think uh, we should have this discussion with Evan involved sometime because. Oh, my God, that would be wonderful. Because then I don't I don't imagine I would have to talk at all. You know, so. So, hey, thanks for doing this, man. Absolutely, and I feel like we kind of ended in a weird place, and I'm yeah. very sorry for that. No, that was awesome because, yeah, people can Google whatever it was you just talked about. <laughs> Meaning, Dino is going to be Googling whatever. I'm not Googling. No, just no, to be he's, fair, he's throwing in the towel. Hey, he's I'm like, not whatever. Googling any of it because all I kept thinking about was uh, at some point Jill had bought me. Uh, uh, what was Todd McFarlane's company called? Image? Uh, image? Well, yeah, yeah, yep. I She bought me an Image hockey jersey. Oh, and there that, you go. That wow. Follow, right. So the thing is, remember we used to wear hockey jerseys like we wore them? Like, no. I don't, okay, fine. Never. So I wore Never. hockey jerseys. Wore those. And uh, so that led to this long <laughs> you discussion. Did too. Yeah. That led to this <laughs> long discussion about. Uh, the money that Todd McFarlane was making and slowly the gaze, the glaze on my eyes, just going, it's a cool hockey Jersey. I'm going to wear it, but I don't need to know about how much the spawn dolls cost. You know, I don't, yeah. you know, it, but at the same, like I have a spawn poster. Cause there was a, like a 10 year stretch where she would buy me uh, two comic books and a poster every year for Christmas and so like i have a spawn poster and the one poster that i still have mounted is uh a lobo poster oh there you go you know because that that dude was that was a fun he's coming movie. to one of the he's coming to one of the tv shows i think really or movies or something Jeez. uh i thought it was uh krypton from oh uh, yeah there you go yep 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 yeah great so i thought i was cool for a minute there and then you two just agreed on something again that i don't know what you're talking about so i 
you know, I'm going to just quickly share something yeah. with you that's called the concept of the geek auction. Okay. okay. You get a group of people together who are interested in the same types of things and a discussion will ensue. And in that discussion, and it's natural, it just happens, everybody kind of discusses and drops things and <clears throat> that's to assess where everybody else is with a base of knowledge to know at what cutoff point you don't talk to somebody about something so that their eyes roll back in their sure. head and they just completely tune out. Yep. And that's kind of, that. that's what I call the geek auction. And unfortunately, you know, Eric and I can geek out more with the comics than you. And then it leads yeah. to this awkward thing where you're like, Oh fuck, I want to get out of here. No, no. See the uh, cool, like on my end of that, I, uh, I, I'm super excited because I don't know what you're talking about. And <laughs> and at the same time, I don't mind that at all because, you know, it's I, – I think I gave it a fair shot. And, like, I, I'll respectfully Google a bunch of the stuff that we talked about tonight and, and sort of take it all in. But, yeah, it's it's – yeah, the geek auction is, is prevalent anywhere from whether it be – three dudes at a record store or, oh, yeah. or dudes, you know, yeah, anything. Yeah. And so, you know, Hey, did you see this concert? Like Portlandia did a, a bit about, uh, did you read this? Did, you know, and people are just like, okay, constantly sort of establishing either a hierarchy of, of social placement based on the consumption of a shared experience or something. And it's, sure. it's fascinating, but like with this stuff, yeah, I don't like you, you've got some Italian fellow named Carmen or maybe Carmen's a woman on your, on your, he's a guy. Okay. Yeah. yeah it's a comics. Theater. Yeah. Cause you said there's somebody named Julie who I just assumed was a woman, but in everybody called him Julie. Yeah. Yeah. In discussion, obviously he's not. So, um, yeah, it's, it's this cool, there's this cool thing where I, I don't mind it at all. And like, it's it's fascinating to me, and it's it's not my cup of tea. But at the same time, it's obviously lots and lots of people's cup of tea. So there must be some merit to it. And, and as a as an English major, what I what I've always said, or not always, just like in the last since people have been talking to me about it, I I tend to think that comic books and just my simplified version of them. I, I think that Stan Lee's a little bit like Mark Twain. Like he's created he's created yeah. the American stories in lots of ways. And obviously yeah. that's the the most simplified version of that because you know Julie or the the Italian fellow or all of these other people were part of this, but to to my untrained eye, you know, comic giving comic books the the uh the Jesus, I don't know what that text meant. But giving uh, giving comic books the respect of being narrative literature, yeah, Stanley has to be a giant figure in American literature. Yeah, you know, would, in the absolutely. And the problem, like when when we had when Evan came on and had given me a bunch of books to read and stuff like that, <laughs> and uh, and and the problem I had was the narrative as a narrative, just sort of as a literature. The narrative is so, in my experience, was so broken up that I had no concept of, you know, beginnings or endings or any of that because the the universes are so large and so yeah. all encompassing that, 
Yes, I don't like we. I think you guys talked about several it, universes that either did or did not overlap, and and it's just you, as a non comic book guy, I'm like, yeah, see, that's that's the point where I discount it, where I can't. There's no sure. point of entry for me because you know, like I don't. I always find origin stories the the important thing, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, but. Eric, did you have something you wanted to mention from your from this text? Excelsior! 